Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I meet four people who are campaigning to have a science center built in their city. And I'm also joined by two of my Physics World colleagues for a quiz about the first lines of famous physics-related popular science books. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by GNBKL Group, a world-class manufacturer of vacuum hardware, including chambers, valves, and components. Make sure you watch their online game show, Will It Bloat?, where they place everyday objects, such as a hot dog, a chocolate Easter bunny, and even an air cylinder into a vacuum chamber to see if they bloat. You can watch America's favorite vacuum show at www.vacuumchamber.com. I've always had a soft spot for science centers. When I was growing up in Canada, I enjoyed school trips to the Ontario Science Centre. And when we moved to Bristol, I remember the excitement when the city's new science centre opened at the turn of the millennium. When I heard of a campaign to build a science centre in the Canadian city of Guelph, a place that I had lived in many years ago, I was intrigued. I wanted to find out how one goes about creating a science centre. So I'm joined down the line from Guelph by four members of that campaign group. Welcome to the podcast, and can you please introduce yourselves? Great. Thanks, Hamish. So happy to be here. My name is Joanne O'Meara. I'm a professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Guelph, and I am one of the co-founders of Royal City Science. Hello, I'm, I'm Orbax. I'm a production specialist for physics education content here for the Department of Physics at the University of Guelph, and I'm also one of the co-founders of Royal City Science. My name is Kate Howells. Very happy to be here. Um, in my day job, I work with a nonprofit called the Planetary Society, where I do public education on space science and exploration topics and help advocate for increased funding for space missions. And this is George Stakos here. I'm a lifelong executive in the private sector working for various corporations, but I am a science enthusiast and love being with this group. I serve as treasurer and uh, secretary for Royal City Science Center. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, I know that many listeners might not know much about Guelph. So here's a little introduction before we get started talking about science centers. As well as being a lovely place to live or study, Guelph's a small city of about 145,000 people that's located about 100 kilometers west of downtown Toronto. So for listeners in the UK, that's about the same size as Lancaster or Norwich. And unlike some communities in Canada, Guelph is by no means isolated. There are probably several million people within a one-hour drive of the city. So it wouldn't just be Guelphites who would enjoy this planned science centre. So Joanne, how did you guys come up with the idea of having a science centre in Guelph? 
So Orbex and I have been working together for many years now, doing a lot of community outreach programs. Um, for example, before the pandemic hit, our most recent project was a collaboration with the Guelph Civic Museum. Uh, and it actually came out of a course that I teach for our third year physics majors called Science Communication. At the end of the course, their group project is to design and build a science center style interactive exhibit for elementary school students. And we give them a budget uh, and we get them to plan out how they're going to use that money. Uh, and they actually build it. And then we go to the Guelph Civic Museum for a week. We call STEM week at the end of the fall semester. And the museum organizes the school visits from local elementary school students. So we had over 700 kids come through in the first year that we ran the program. It was hugely successful. Teachers loved it, wanted to come back the next year. And so after that success, Orbex and I were just chatting and just kind of you know, between ourselves saying, why don't we have a permanent home for something like this in Guelph? We have an art gallery, we have a sports complex, we have, you know, amazing facilities, uh, but we don't have anything permanent for, you know, science curious, the naturally curious in our community. So we just kind of started talking to people that we know in mainly in the university doing outreach in, in different disciplines and it, it really snowballed and we formed as a nonprofit uh, at, in the fall of 2020 during the pandemic and it's just grown from there. And Orbax, can you describe your vision for the Guelph Science Centre? Well, I've been very vocal about my uh, definite requirements in this endeavor to have a dinosaur skeleton of some kind, preferably a Tyrannosaurus Rex to be there. Um, but, you know, <laughs> science centers to me have always been a place of wonder and this place where you can just let your inner nerd loose without any sort of judgment. Um, and just just whether you're old or young or, or studied or cur just curious – that you can just get in there and let it all wash over you and, and be excited and find and find the fun in actually doing science, which I think a lot of stuff, especially, you know, through the last few years with students, you notice, you know, kind of the fun of why we do all of this has, has disappeared. So first off and foremost, I picture this place as being a place of discovery, a place of being fun and a place where you can just get absolutely lost in, in science and in the wonder of discovery. Um, beyond that, T-Rex skeleton, definitely. Got to have a skeleton in there of some kind or another. Um, but also, you know, Guelph is a uniquely environmentally driven town uh, and a town that uniquely cares about climate change and about its community. And I think one of the things that we can best do to offer a, a, a slight twist on maybe a classic science center is to advocate for those kind of ideas as well uh, in, the, in the building of a facility like this. But number one, of course, is definitely a T-Rex. So d did you hear our backs that uh, I think the, the Natural History Museum in, in London, they did have a skeleton, famously had a skeleton of a dinosaur in the, uh, in the entrance to the museum. And, and a few years ago, they very controversially removed it. And I think they re replaced it with a, a, a whale or something like that. If, if, if you were on this side of the Atlantic, you would have been up in arms over that, I'm guessing. I've seen that skeleton on several occasions, and I'm appalled to know that it's been replaced with a whale. But that said, whales are pretty cool too. <laughs> okay, and now maybe that skeleton, <laughs> uh, you, you could pinch it and, uh, and use it I have it absolutely no connection to that skeleton being stolen, and any sort <laughs> of mention of that is definitely not tied into any sort of bigger agenda that I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah, s s stay tuned for it to show up in Guelph. <laughs> Can you spy piece? <laughs> 
So, Kate, in my introduction, I, I mentioned the Ontario Science Centre in Toronto, which was a, a, a pioneering um, science museum. And um, it, it's not too far away from Guelph, uh, about 100 kilometres. And it's, it's served the, the, the people of southern Ontario for over 50 years. Why do you think there's a need for additional science centres in smaller communities like Guelph? Yeah, so I also grew up going to the Ontario Science Centre, and I think at that time it didn't feel so far away, but Toronto has grown a lot since then. And now if you're driving or, say, packing a bunch of kids into a school bus and heading to the Ontario Science Centre, it's on the far side of Toronto and the traffic is bananas and it will take you two hours to get there and two hours to get back. So what that really means is that Visiting the Science Centre in, in Toronto is an ordeal that you're not going to do frequently. You'd maybe go once a year, I would guess. And, and even if you had a, you know, say you're a parent and you have a kid who's a real science enthusiast, fueling that passion is going to be really challenging if you have to do a four-hour round trip to go to the Science Centre. So one of the main things I think that is you know, worth building a science center here for is having access for people in our community. So whether that's a science enthusiastic kid or adults who want to meet other science nerds or people in the community who need access to some kind of science learning, um, having it right here and, and also for everybody else this side of Toronto. So anybody further west than us who would have to travel even further to get to the Ontario Science Center I think it's really important to have something local and accessible. Then there's a couple other reasons too. So there are a lot of great science outreach organizations in Guelph and in the surrounding area that are also sort of mobile. They don't really have a permanent home. We've already been collaborating extensively with those groups just in the work we've been doing the last couple of years. But I think having a permanent location for science outreach in Guelph would be an opportunity for those organizations, those small locally driven organizations to have a place to work together, to elevate the work that they're already doing. Um, and then I think the other main thing is that it would be responding to the local needs and the issues that are important to people in this community. As Orbax mentioned, we're a very environmentally mindful community here. There's a lot of concern about groundwater because we, we have like a Nestle plant, for example, that taps and sells a lot of water from here. And that's something that Guelphites are very concerned about. We have, you know, there's there's different policy issues, you know, in, in municipal government here than you would find in Toronto. It's altogether just a different place. So being able to respond to the needs of this place, this community, um, rather than kind of just falling into the big melting pot of the greater Toronto area, um, I think that that's really important too and very worth um, the investments that are needed to build this place. Yeah, that's a good point about sort of accessibility because I remember when when our children were young, we would go to the you know Bristol Science Center, you know, probably several times a year, and mm -hmm. um, my, my daughter or one of my daughters um, volunteered there. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we've had a really good relationship with it. And if it was, um, you know, 100 kilometers away, uh, we probably wouldn't wouldn't have the same the same sort of mm -hmm. connection to it. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's really important for those kids. But then also, I think for adults as well, like one of the activities that we've already done was um, participating in a virtual 
uh, information session on COVID-19 uh, vaccinations for people who were concerned or had questions. Um, and that that kind of local programming where it, it's it's publicized in the local paper so people here can find out about it and participate and not be just in a, you know, in a huge sea of like hundreds of thousands of people, if it were, say, something being put on by the Ontario Science Centre, um, giving people an opportunity to actually participate meaningfully. I think it's so much easier to do that when you're working locally and you have a smaller place with a smaller sort of catchment area. And Joe, you founded the organization Royal City Science in 2020 with the ultimate goal of building a bricks and mortar science center. Now, now you haven't got there yet, but can, can you give us a flavor of some of uh, Royal City Science's recent activities? I, I was particularly intrigued by an event that you organized with local breweries. That, that sounded like a lot of fun. It was. It was tons of fun. It was actually really our first in-person programming. So having started in the fall of 2020 during the pandemic, um, all of our programming either had to be online or if it was in person, it had to be in a way that was physically distanced and, and consistent with the public health guidelines, whatever they were at the time. So, for example, our very first event over the Christmas holidays in 2020, 2021 uh, was a solar system so we projected a scale model of the solar system onto the city of Guelph. Uh, the sun station was right in the downtown core, and then the planets were scattered at appropriate distances away, and families got either a map or clues to go and find each station. And at each location, one of the partner organizations had a QR code posted in the window where the families could scan the code uh, and find out, you know, welcome to Saturn and find out something about the planet and do some activities. Um, so that was our first event. And we were kind of doing a lot of things along those lines during the pandemic. But then, as you said, uh, we finally got to do some in-person stuff just this past spring. We uh, partnered with Wellington Brewery, who is a fantastic organization business here in the city of Guelph, uh, one of the oldest craft breweries in Ontario. And they uh, did a beer with us for us, uh, which we brewed with some meteorite in the tank. Uh, and we called it Dark Matter Quantum Lager. Uh, there was a bit of blackberry as well in it. Um, and every, whoa, 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 every hold on a minute. Me yeah. You brewed it with meteorites. What? Yes. <laughs> I think you need to explain that a bit more. Sure. Arbex? <laughs> yeah, I got a guy. So uh, he's got like a brontosaurus skeleton that I've been saving up for. But turns out in the meantime, he had a bunch of meteorites. So we were able to actually uh, have a small collection, basically a handful of uh, Gibeon meteorites that we put into the brew itself. For okay, so out of this world flavor. <laughs> so, 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 you didn't you didn't sort of crunch them up and 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 the, the, you put them in the in the brew and then they were there no. after the beer was. It was, it was more of the essence of meteorite that yeah. was in it. However, uh, a small selection of the um, cans themselves actually had edibles, uh, silver sparkle flake inserted into them. So if you happened to pour out your beer and it was full of sparkles and you were uh, immediately won a prize pack from Wellington from us and one of the pieces of meteorite that we used in the brew. Okay, well, great. Thanks for clarifying that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and Joanne, so, um, I, I remember reading about the, um, this event. Did it also involve visits to breweries where, where, you, where people spoke about the science of, of beer? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, after the beer was ready for launch, uh, our first event was at Wellington Brewery um, and we had two speakers. I was one of them. I talked about the physics of fizz and all about bubbles and carbonation. And we also had one of the brewers from Wellington talk about their process and what goes into making a delicious beer. And we had some fun trivia. And of course, people could buy the beer at the at the brewery there. Um, and 50 cents of every can went to our organization, courtesy of Wellington Brewery. And then for the next three weeks, we had uh, three more science sessions. We called them Science on Tap. Uh, the next one was at Fixed Gear Brewery in Guelph. And we had two people that was called Hearts on the Mind. And it was all about cardiovascular health. Um, and we then had an event at Brothers Brewing downtown Guelph, where that was all about space. And our last one was at Baker Street Station, a pub in town, and that was all about groundwater and sustainability. Um, and at each event, you could buy cans of the dark matter. Um, and at each event, there were two speakers. Each speaker spoke for about 20 minutes. And then there was, as I said, a fun little trivia game at the end to wrap it up. And we're hoping to continue series actually starting in September and go monthly through the next academic year. Just get people out into town to a great pub, have some beer, chat about science and and support the organization. Well, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. So George, you, you've got some money rolling in from your beer sales, but what, what are the challenges that you face uh, trying to get a science center built? Do you, do you have support from the local community? I mean, it sounds like the brewers are on board. So let me answer uh, the second part of your question first, Hamish. Um, we've had some, what I see in the group, see some incredible enthusiastic support from the community. Uh, attendance at the various events and programs that we've launched, as Joanne talked about, has been uh, stellar as far as we're concerned. Uh, our Science on Tap series had 200 uh, plus participants uh, during that uh, that program's uh, that program's uh, uh, unfolding, uh, solar system stroll over twenty six hundred uh, website and actual participants in the program itself in our twelve days of puzzlement, a program that Joanne did not talk about. Uh, we had over five thousand website and participants during that program as well. So we see, quite frankly, a latent untapped potential for this community. While there is a you know challenge funding, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we see that there is a latent need for the kind of programming, and ultimately uh, the founding of a uh, you know of a science center here in this city. Uh, from a funding perspective, it's certainly as challenging as uh, any non-for-profit uh, organization will talk to you about and tell you about. Especially true during COVID, where you can't do the uh, as much of the in-person and live kinds of events. However, I think COVID has actually, you know, that challenge and the pandemic itself has actually made us stronger because we had no choice but to go to the, uh, the community with uh, online and remote programs. And that actually has built a core strength of what we're about. And we expect to actually exploit that strength as we move forward and roll out um, the, this, you know, the Royal City uh, Science Center from bricks and mortar perspective. From a funding perspective, uh, you know, it, it's certainly challenging, always challenging from a, a charity perspective. But uh, now that we have achieved charity status, we expect both private and public funding to increase uh, commensurately over the next little while and help achieve our goal. Um, 
And, you know, quite frankly, we expect a lot more support from what I'd consider corporate and public uh, entities, uh, specifically around the city of Guelph. Uh, we are actively lobbying them, but, you know, we'd like to see them come on board uh, with a more uh, involved participation. Uh, developers in the community, whether industrial or residential, that can help support us. And then finally, corporations, uh, where we've seen some uh, initial uh, funding efforts on there and, and funding uh, help. Uh, but we expect that to increase commensurately over the next little while as well. So, Orbax, when do you think the center's doors will first open? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, uh, I, I've been thrilled at how successful we've been at programming um, and our virtual and in-person programming, even through all the restrictions that we've had, I think have been stellar. Um I think our awareness is increasing in the community, uh, the community's awareness of us, not we, we're very well aware of the community that we're within. Um, but I, 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 you know, it, it's a long process, right? And this type of thing takes time. So, you know, it, it is entirely dependent on the support of the people that we're trying to reach. So the more we get out there in the community, the more programming that we do, the more fun we bring to the science, um, the easier it'll be for us to open doors on a space. And frankly, when it comes down to it, fitting that brontosaurus skeleton inside is going to take a while to find a big enough space to actually put it in. It fills up almost the entire garage just laying around in pieces so together i can only imagine it being much bigger but i mean i think you know we're, we're looking to to uh if you're a land developer and have a giant space for us now is the time to move forward but i think you know uh, uh within a five to ten year span uh, I, I think we're all realistically hoping to be able to open some kind of doors um to a permanent installation well, that's great. I mean, I have to admit, I um, have to confess that I haven't been to Guelph in pro probably 10 years. So maybe maybe if it if it takes me another 10 years to get there, I'll be uh, <laughs> I'll be I'll be visiting the Science Center. Thanks a lot to, to all of you for uh, speaking to me. Thanks so much, Hamish. Thank it was great much. speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Regular listeners will know that we do love a quiz on Physics World, and our latest offering challenges your knowledge of the first lines of some of the most iconic popular science books of the past few decades. To chat about the quiz and to try a few of the questions, I'm joined down the line by my Physics World colleagues, Sarah Tesh and Mateen Durrani. Hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hi Hamish. So, Mateen, you've actually co-written a popular science book. It's called Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life. Did you and your co-author, Liz Callagher, spend lots of time dreaming up your opening line? Um, to be honest, I think we spent more effort thinking about the introduction to the book. And I think one of the, one of the things in the quiz that we've done is to pick out the first lines from the first chapter not the introduction. Um, having said that, we, yeah, we did think quite a bit about it. Um, I suppose the thing about a first sentence, it's not just the first sentence. It's where does the story lead? So, you know, you're thinking about the second one and the third one and the fourth one. Um, and that's just as important as the first one. But having said that, this quiz did make me uh, go back and look to see what exactly <laughs> we'd written. And, and what is it? Can, can you share with us the first line of, uh, I can. of Furry just... Logic? I've just gone to pick it up. Not that I, I don't know it by heart, but I have, I've got it in front of me. So, 
So, it's a, so this is a book about the physics of animals, just to explain what it's all about. And the first chapter is about heat, and it's a chapter about snakes. It starts off with snakes. So the opening sentence is, In Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, dashing archaeologist Henry Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, faces his worst nightmare. Good first line. No, it's not bad. Um, yeah. I know in the introduction, Hamish, you said some of the most iconic popular science books. I, I'm not sure mine falls into that category, but it's not that bad, actually, having looked, looked back at it. Um, that was not what I was expecting. What were you expecting? Obviously, I've read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I don't know. I was expecting it to be animal-related. Well, I suppose the second sentence is it's all about how the he snakes? has to... Yeah, he's ter- well, the second sentence, as I said, is terrified of snakes. He must brave a secret Egyptian chamber teeming with the reptiles to stop the Ark of the Covenant falling into enemy hands. Ooh. And then it goes on to talk about snakes being very difficult animals to work with. But the snakes in this chapter were ones that were very easy to work with. And they're, well, I don't want to go into the story of my book. But anyway, the whole point of the first sentence Spoilers. is to leave you <laughs> hanging and want, want to make you read further. I mean, I suppose that's yeah. the art of the first sentence. Yeah, I'd say that that definitely works. Yeah. So, so Sarah, our, of course, physics world readers are an amazing bunch, but we really can't expect them to have memorized the first lines of all the books that they've read. But that's not really how the, the quiz works. They're not sort of pulling things out of thin air. So, so can you explain how readers play the game? Uh, so... On our website, or in the last page of the magazine, there's an article called The First Sentence Challenge. And so uh, we have selected a series of books, 16 to be precise. And um, I have gone and listed out for you all of the first sentences of the first chapter, not the preface, not the introduction, not like the quotes of famous scientists that you can sometimes get, but the first chapter. And um, then I've also listed in a different order all of the books and the authors. And your job is to match them all up. So, so the, I suppose the beauty is that you, you can really make an educated guess, can't you? Because you can look at the title, you can look at the author and, and think about the sort of thing that they would write. And then, you know, sort, sort of put the puzzle together. And, unless, of course, you know exactly what the first line is. So, so I think I, I'm going to have a go. So, Sarah, I don't know if you, if you uh, and Mateen or maybe just you, Sarah, would like to, uh, to, to put some to put some first lines to me, and I can uh, I can see if I can work out who's written them. Okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. Okay, so your first one is Melvin Butler, the personal officer at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory, had a problem, the scope and nature of which was plain in a May 1943 telegram to the Civil Service's Chief of Field Operations. Okay. That's quite a long sentence, isn't it? Yes. It is, and, uh, this highlights, the selection that I've chosen for you, Hamish, highlights the uh, different lengths and detail that people go for in their first sentences. <laughs> okay. Now, now that sounds like it's uh, uh, the Second World War, of course, is, is popping out of that. And so, and so what are my four options in terms of books that that could come from? So your book options are Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn, A Father, a Daughter, The Meaning of Nothing and the Beginning of Everything by Amanda Gefter. Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by Carlo Rovelli. Cosmos by Carl Sagan. 
and Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race by Margot Lee Shetterly. Ooh, this is a really difficult one. I'm looking at Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory and Aeronautical, ooh, is that is that a British spelling or no, no, I think it's spelled the same in both the US and Britain. Langley, now I know that there's a Langley near Washington, D.C., but isn't there also a Langley near Heathrow Airport? Oh gosh, this, <laughs> I think this I is. I think you're overthinking this, Hamish. <laughs> am I? Am I? Am I overthinking it? Okay. Um, well, I, I suppose I'm going to have to go with hidden figures. Then is that the uh, is that the right one? Correct. Excellent. So that, that's, that's a book one yeah, that's one a book for about, me. That's a book all about. Um, prominent black scientist who helped, female scientist who helped the uh, NASA win the space race. Um, so okay. that sentence is a kind of like a quite a bit like my book. It's quite anecdotal and I suppose trying to draw you in. Okay, well, you've got, got one, out, one out of one, Hamish. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm on a roll now. Yeah, and, and so, Sarah, what's the, uh, what's the second first line? Okay, well, for the, for the next, for the remaining three sentences, I'm going to tell you them all at once because they could apply to multiple books. You ready? Yep. It's hard to know where to begin. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's, that's not you talking, that's the book. <laughs> nope, that's the quote. <laughs> okay, it's hard to know where to begin. So the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And your third one is, in his youth, Albert Einstein spent a year loafing aimlessly. Okay, well, I mean... I think, I'm sure this is a red herring, but I'm guessing that the in his youth Albert Einstein line comes from trespassing on Einstein's lawn. Is that right? No, you've got that. I was right about the red herring there. Got that wrong. Okay, well, in that case, can I, can I, okay, I've got that one wrong, but can I say, uh, oh, it's hard to know where to begin. Is that, trespassing on Einstein's lawn. I'm guessing, yes. you know, telling the tale about trespassing on Einstein's lawn, it's hard to know where to begin. Okay, I've got that one right. Um, and so, okay, in his youth, Albert Einstein, I'm going to say that Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by Carlo Rivelli. Is that right? Correct. Correct, yeah. Okay, and so that leaves... I suppose the obvious one, the cosmos is all that it is or ever was or ever will be by, which is cosmos by Carl Sagan. Correct. Correct. It's interesting, Hamish, because that one, the, the, Carl, um, the Carlo Rivelli book was actually written in Italian and it's been translated into English. So I wonder if the uh, translators sort of felt pressure to get that one right. Um, it would have been something different in his native Italian, which is what he wrote it in. But mm. um yeah, I suppose so. That's the Einstein one, isn't it? So, yeah, lo loafing aimlessly. I wonder. I wonder how you would say that in Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an. I did. I didn't know that that book was first written in Italian, but of course that makes what makes sense because Rovelli is a an Italian theory a theoretical physicist. I think he that's is. right. Yeah. 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 I remember when we interviewed him, he said he writes in Italian because that's what comes most naturally. But then he said he had to work really hard to get a good translator. So. But I think so, the Carl Sagan one is like, that's my favorite. I love that. I love that opening line. It's almost like the Bible. So I quite, I quite like that one. 
Um, it is. It is. And yeah, that was a, um, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember when that book came out, um, you know, that was, the, the, it was such a huge hit, wasn't it, uh, Mateen? <laughs> cosmos or Cosmos. So I heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think by my reckoning, I, I've done three out of four on that, which is, which is okay. Um, but then again, it was a multiple choice question, uh, <laughs> questions where I was provided the answers. So maybe not so great. So uh, I should pay more attention to uh, the first lines of books when I read them. Uh, thanks, uh, Sarah and Mateen. And you can find the quiz on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, The First Sentence Challenge. Yes, and the answers will be appearing on Friday of this week. Also new on the website, we've just published a review of Chad Orzel's latest book, A Brief History of Timekeeping, The Science of Marking Time, From Stonehenge to Atomic Clocks. Orzel is an American atomic physicist who burst onto the literary scene a decade or so ago with his quirky book, How to Teach Quantum Physics to Your Dog. Now, he's turned his attention to the long history of scientific discoveries, political machinations, and societal changes that have shaped how we keep time. A Brief History of Timekeeping is reviewed by the science writer and broadcaster Sharon Ann Holgate. And to find out how she rated Orzel's latest effort, check out her review. Just look for the headline, From TikTok to TikTok, How Humans Keep Track of Time. Also new on the website this week is a feature article about the famed Bengali director Satyajit Ray, who blended art and science in his iconic films. The article is called The Unique Universe of Satyajit Ray, and in it, Andrew Robinson explores the similarities between one of Hollywood's most famous sci-fi movies and a script by Ray that was never filmed. And stay tuned for the August episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at the life of Ray. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by GNBKL. Do check out their video series, Will It Bloat, at www.vacuumchamber.com. Thanks to Joanne O'Meara, George Stakos, Kate Howells, Orbax, Sarah Tesh and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. Goodbye. Physics World.